0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. De Futilitate, On Futility, by C.S. Lewis, Part 1. When I was asked to address you, Sir Henry Tizard suggested that the problem of futility Was likely to be present to many of your minds. It would have been raised by the disappointment of all those hopes with which the last war closed, and the uneasy feeling that the results of the present war may prove equally disappointing. And if I remember rightly, he also hinted that the feeling of futility might go even deeper. The eschatological hopes which supported our more remote and Christian ancestors, and the secular hopes which supported the revolutionaries, or even the liberals of the last century, have both rather faded out. There is a certain vacuity left, a widespread question as to what all this hustling and crowded life is about, or whether indeed it is about anything. Now, in one way, I am the worst person in the world to address you on this subject. Perhaps because I had not a very happy boyhood, or perhaps because of some peculiarity in my glands, I am too familiar with the idea of futility to feel the shock of it so sharply as a good speaker on the subject ought to. Early in this war, a laboring man who was doing a midnight home guard patrol with another educated man and myself, discovered from our conversation that we did not expect that this war would end wars, or, in general, that human misery would ever be abolished. I shall never forget that man... "'standing still there in the moonlight for at least a whole minute, "'as this entirely novel idea sank in and at last breaking out, "'then what's the good of the ruddy world going on?' "'What astonished me, for I was as much astonished as the workman, "'was the fact that this misgiving was wholly new to him. "'How,' I wondered, "'could a man have reached the middle forties without ever before doubting?' whether there was any good in the ruddy world going on. Such security was to me unimaginable. I can understand a man coming in the end and after prolonged consideration to the view that existence is not futile. But how any man could have taken it for granted beat me, and beats me still. And if there is anyone present whose fear of futility is based solely on such local and temporary facts as the war or the almost equally threatening prospect of the next peace, I must ask him to bear with me while I suggest that we have to face the possibility of a much deeper and more radical futility, one which, if it exists at all, is wholly incurable. This cosmic futility is concealed from the masses by popular evolutionism, Speaking to a scientifically trained audience, I need not labor the point that popular evolutionism is something quite different from evolution as the biologists understand it. Biological evolution is a theory about how organisms change. Some of these changes have made organisms, judged by human standards, better, more flexible, stronger, more conscious. The majority of the changes have not done so. As J.B.S. Haldane says, in evolution, progress is the exception, and degeneration the rule. Popular evolutionism ignores this. For it, evolution simply means improvement. And it is not confined to organisms, but applied also to moral qualities, institutions, arts, intelligence, and the like. There is thus lodged in popular thought the conception that improvement is, somehow, a cosmic law, a conception to which the sciences give no support at all. There is no general tendency even for organisms to improve. There is no evidence that the mental and moral capacities of the human race have been increased since man became man. And there is certainly no tendency for the universe as a whole to move in any direction which we should call good. On the contrary, evolution, even if it were what the mass of the people suppose it to be, is only, by astronomical and physical standards, an inconspicuous foreground detail in the picture. The huge background is filled by quite different principles, entropy, degradation, disorganization, Everything suggests that organic life is going to be a very short and unimportant episode in the history of the universe. We have often heard individuals console themselves for their individual troubles by saying, It will be all the same 100 years hence. But you can do the like about our troubles as a species. Whatever we do, it is all going to be the same in a few hundred million years hence. Organic life is only a lightning flash in cosmic history in the long run, nothing will come of it. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not for one moment trying to suggest that this long-term futility provides any ground for diminishing our efforts to make human life while it lasts less painful and less unfair than it has been up to date. The fact that the ship is sinking is no reason for allowing her to be a floating hell while she still floats. Indeed, There is a certain fine irony in the idea of keeping the ship very punctiliously in good order up to the very moment at which she goes down. If the universe is shameless and idiotic, that is no reason why we should imitate it. Well-brought-up people have always regarded the tumbrel and the scaffold as places for one's best clothes and best manners. Such, at least, was my first reaction to the picture of the futile cosmos. And I am not in the first instance, suggesting that that picture should be allowed to make any difference to our practice, but it must make a difference to our thoughts and feelings. Now, it seems to me that there are three lines, and three only, which one can take about this futility. In the first place, you can simply take it. You can become a consistent pessimist, as Lord Russell was when he wrote, the worship of a free man, and based your whole life on what he called a firm foundation of unshakable despair. You will feed yourself on the Wessex novels and the Shropshire Lad and Lucretius and a very manly, impressive figure you may contrive to be. In the second place, you can deny the picture of the universe which the scientists paint. There are various ways of doing this. You might become a Western idealist, or an oriental pantheist. In either case, you would maintain that the material universe was, in the last resort, not quite real. It is a kind of mirage, produced by our senses and forms of thought. Reality is to be sought elsewhere. Or you might say, as Jews, Mohammedans, and Christians do, that though nature is real as far as she goes, still there are other realities— and that by bringing them in you alter the picture so much that it is no longer a picture of futility. Or thirdly, one could accept the scientific picture and try to do something about the futility. I mean, instead of criticizing the universe, we may criticize our own feeling about the universe, and try to show that our sense of futility is unreasonable, or improper, or irrelevant, I imagine this third procedure will seem to you, at any rate to begin with, the most promising. Let us explore it. I think the most damaging criticism we can level against our own feeling of cosmic futility is this. Futility is the opposite of utility. A machine or plan is futile when it does not serve the purpose for which it was devised. In calling the universe futile, therefore we are really applying to it a means-and-end pattern of thought, treating it as if it were a thing manufactured and manufactured for some purpose. In calling it futile, we are only expressing our naive surprise at the discovery that basic reality does not possess the characteristics of a human artifact, a thing made by men to serve the purposes of men, and the demand that it should may be regarded as preposterous. It is rather like complaining that a tree is futile because the branches don't happen to come just where we want them for climbing it, or even a stone because it doesn't happen to be edible. This point of view certainly seems, at first, to have all the bracing shock of common sense. And I certainly believe that no philosophy which does not contain this view, as at least one of its elements, is at all likely to be true. But taken by itself it will turn out to be rather too simple. If we push it to its logical conclusion, we shall arrive at something like this. The proper way of stating the facts is not to say that the universe is futile, but that the universe has produced an animal, namely man, which can make tools. The long habit of making tools has engendered in him another habit, that of thinking in terms of means and end. This habit becomes so deeply ingrained that even when the creature is not engaged in tool-making, it continues to use this pattern of thought, to project it, as we say, upon reality as a whole. Hence arises the absurd practice of demanding that the universe should be good, or complaining that it is bad. But such thoughts are merely human. They tell us nothing about the universe. They are merely a fact about man, like his pigmentation, or the shape of his lungs. There is something attractive about this. But the question is, how far we can go? Can we carry through to the end the view that human thought is merely human? That it is simply a zoological fact about Homo sapiens that he thinks in a certain way. That it in no way reflects though no doubt it results from, non-human or universal reality. The moment we ask this question, we receive a check. We are at this very point asking whether a certain view of human thought is true. And the view in question is just the view that human thought is not true, not a reflection of reality. And this view is itself a thought. In other words, we are asking, is the thought that no thoughts are true itself true? If we answer yes, we contradict ourselves. For if all thoughts are untrue, then this thought is untrue. There is, therefore, no question of a total skepticism about human thought. We are always prevented from accepting total skepticism because it can be formulated only by making a tacit exception in favor of the thought we are thinking at the moment. Just as the man who warns the newcomer, don't trust anyone in this office, always expects you to trust him at that moment. Whatever happens, then, the most we can ever do is to decide that certain types of human thought are merely human or subjective and others not. However small the class, some class of thoughts must be regarded not as mere facts about the way human brains work, but as true insights, as the reflection of reality in human consciousness. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.